that you would give him uh, grace uh, for endurance, Lord, that, that he wouldn't just uh, finish out the week uh, just stumbling across the finish line, but that you would enable him to, to start as he began, running strong, proclaiming your word boldly. Lord, bless this time with us tonight, Lord, by your spirit. Enable him to deliver the word, and by your spirit, enable us to receive it. Uh, do your work amongst us, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Who are we for? Bayshore, Bayshore, rah, rah, rah. <laughs> Five, six, seven, eight. Who do we appreciate? Roots, roots, rah, rah, rah. Okay, there we are. Yes, I don't want to stumble here in these last couple of days. I do have to confess to you, when Kendall approached me about the possibility of coming to Bayshore, there was just a witness of my spirit to say yes before I really looked at what I was going to be asked to do. And uh, 11 preparations. By this time in the middle of the week, I am so tired of hearing myself speak. And thankfully, Nancy didn't say to me, you think you're tired of hearing yourself speak. But this challenge of, of being uh, one who is given the sacred task of opening the scriptures is one that's probably one of the most precious to me. Uh, early on, uh, when I felt a call into ministry, and it turned out to be more in the uh, field of, of uh, uh, biblical uh, education ministry, there was this desire. And, and, you know, we all ask for scriptures, don't we, to kind of sustain us. You know, what, are, what are the marching orders, Lord? And I felt like early on in my Bible school days in southern Ontario, uh, essentially the Lord gave me this verse, David, I want you to be a man of God in whom the word of God dwells richly. That's been the great call of my own spirit, and I'm so thankful for the privilege I've had, even though it's 11 times, to be one who digs deep into the Word to share deeply with you. I've been thinking just in the last uh, little bit, a matter of fact, to be honest with you, in about the last hour, um, about the challenge that those who are called into vocational Christian service face in this time. I've had opportunity to talk here on these grounds with uh, several who are in a, a full-time Christian vocational service, or at least are trying to be in full-time vocational Christian service and are having to do some things on the side in terms of tent making and that kind of thing to support their ministries. And realizing that, uh, that COVID in particular has really accentuated the challenges that these uh, women and men who have been called to preach the word, to be instant in season and out of season, face and are obligated because of their call to address. Uh, preachers don't have it easy. A lot of times uh, preachers are, uh, because they're visible, because they have to say some difficult things, they have to speak hard truths uh, to the congregation as a whole or to people individually, uh, and so sometimes they're, they're often, uh, uh, you know, people go home and have them for dinner. I didn't say they invited them to dinner. I said they had them for dinner. And there's this kind of, of, of discussion. Well, I wish she'd have said less of this, or I wish she'd have said more of that. And, and there's this kind of constant sense of being evaluated. One of the challenges is preparing every Sunday to preach. 
And I love the story of the seminary professor who was asked to come to a little ministerial meeting in the hills of, of eastern Kentucky. And he got up and gave a stirring lecture on the, how important it was to, to make notes and to write out a manuscript and, and to be fully prepared. And at the end, he took some questions. And uh, there was one uh, older pastor sitting back there, an old fellow who had been in the ministry a long time. And, and he noticed he wasn't responding. And he said, uh, Pastor, do you have any thoughts on what I have just shared with you? And he said, well, let me tell you, son. He said, I don't take any notes. As a matter of fact, he said, if you take notes, what happens is the devil looks over your shoulder, and he sees what you're going to say next, and he meets you, and he defeats you at every point. So I don't write any notes for my sermons. So when I get up, I don't know what I'm going to say next. The congregation doesn't know what I'm going to say next. And even God Almighty, he don't know what I'm going to say next. Well, the challenge we have is being sure that we are following God Almighty in terms of the Spirit. I love the story of the, the young preacher who uh, came into a congregation, and they had an annual golf outing every year, and that was the big event. It was the big fellowship event. It was the big fundraising event, and a couple of the leading uh, laymen in the church, they put all of their heart and soul into it, and they got out on the golf course, and the first foursome got up to the first tee, and then the heavens just opened up and let loose. And rain fell in all directions, and thunder and lightning. The lightning was flashing. The thunder was rumbling. And the one of the laymen said, uh, Rev, uh, can't you do something about this weather? And his response was, Sir, I'm in sales, not management. <laughs> if you are concerned about the weather, you need to talk to headquarters. So often the expectations that are on pastors and people who choose to be in full-time vocational service in a wide variety of ways, whether that's teaching in Christian schools or working in Christian camps like this one, or being missionaries, or serving in other uh, service areas that are basically an expression of their Christian witness, is something that I think in this day and age we've got to pay really special attention to. This came through to me uh, during my presidential role at Taylor University. In the middle of the night, there was a knock on my door, and my chief of security was there. And he said, uh, Dave, I've got some, got some hard news. I said, okay. He said, one of our freshman girls uh, from Montana uh, has just committed suicide on our campus. And uh, she had just come. Her parents were had homeschooled her. They were concerned about sending her away to college, and so there was a heaviness. And the dean of students was with him, and the dean of students said, let me call the parents. And I said, no, uh, as president, that's my responsibility. But before I called the parents, I asked if uh, we had the, uh, the phone number for their home pastor. And we did. So I got on the phone, woke him up, explained the situation to him, and asked him if he wouldn't mind driving over to the home. Now, this is a large area, and it was going to take him some time to get there. And so I said, would you mind going over and being there so that when I call, uh, you can be there to help them in their pastoral, uh, in, in pastoral care and concern? There was just dead silence on the other end of the line. I said, I said are, are you still there? He said, yes. 
And I said, well, how long will it take you to get over there? And this is what he said to me. He said, sir, I didn't sign up for this. And he hung up the phone. At that moment, you can imagine what went through my own heart and spirit as someone committed to equipping clergy and for just such times as these. Uh, I wondered what was going on in that pastor's life. I would find out months later that there were a whole bunch of things going on in his life. He was in crisis. There were issues in the congregation. The very family whose daughter had committed suicide was one of the families who were trying to get him removed from pastoral leadership in that congregation. So I said to my chief of police, uh, my chief of security, uh, do we have a chaplain, a, a police chaplain, anywhere in the vicinity? And he was a member of the National Association of Police Chaplains, uh, Christian Police Chaplains. And uh, he pulled it out, and sure enough, the sheriff in that county was an ordained minister. And so we called the sheriff, and he, who was a part-time clergyman and a full-time a sheriff went over to be with the family when I called them to give them the very terrible and awful news that their daughter had chosen to take her own life. And, and it, I was so angry at that young pastor, hoping he wasn't an Asbury Seminary graduate. Uh, thankfully, he wasn't. Um, but he, for whatever reasons, was not fully prepared for the burden of the call. And so tonight, I want to try and reawaken us to just how critical it is that we come alongside those who have been called to full-time vocational service on behalf of the kingdom. Because the attacks have never been more intense in recent Christian history here in the West than they are today on the core values. It used to be that uh, being a Christian, being a Christian pastor, um, you know, gave you some creds, so to speak. I mean, some credit. Uh, that's not true anymore. Fundamentally, society has turned away from the church. And, and the core values, it used to be as a pastor, you could get up and you can say, as I said the other night, as Billy Graham did for years and years, the Bible says, and people would sit up and take notice. Today, the general response out there beyond our tribes and clans, Christian clans, fundamentally is, who cares? We don't have any interest in the Bible. We don't believe there is an absolute truth. We live our own truth. And then you've got the undermining of the core essentials of the Christian faith, of sexual fidelity, of uh, sexual identity, of marriage, and on and on this list goes. Abortion, there are just so many things that have escalated so dramatically. And pastors are having to answer questions and address issues. I was talking with a pastor uh, on the grounds uh, who said that during this COVID period, he has seen more of his Christian family's marriages in trouble than at any other time in his ministry because of the intensity, the time together, the crisis in terms of funding and financing. And so we have to understand that these women and men who have been called to lead ministry, called by God, really need to be supported in ways greater than we ever have before. And that's where I feel led to go this evening. And so just to give you an idea of the job description, if you have your Bible, would you turn uh, to 1 Timothy uh, and uh, the third chapter? Most of you are familiar 
with these instructions to Timothy about the people he was to select to be in spiritual leadership, to be overseers, to give oversight to the congregation, uh, that, uh, that uh, Timothy would then superintend as a bishop multiple congregations, many of them house churches uh, in Ephesus. And he says this in, in chapter 3, verse 1. Here's a trustworthy saying. In other words, pay attention to this. This is absolute truth. If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. Do we understand just how noble it is to be called into leadership, to be those who are called to be the good shepherds of the sheep? And he says, Timothy, I want you to be very much aware of this, that when you select people and you appoint and anoint people to leadership, be sure that you don't just assume because they think they want to or they think they should have, that they really are. They need to understand that overseers must be above reproach, the husband of but one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. Are you exhausted yet? He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert. He may be uh, come conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the, the devil's trap. He needs to be able to walk on water. No, that isn't there, but that's kind of the implication, isn't it? Deacons, likewise, are to be men worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested, and then if there is nothing against them, let them serve. In the same way, their spouses are to be women worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. And deacons must be the husband of but one wife and must manage his children and his household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. Although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great, because God appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, and was taken up in glory. On to verse, on chapter 4. The Spirit clearly says, think about our current day now, as Paul was anticipating what these called ones, elders and deacons, were going to have as their responsibility. The Spirit clearly says that in the later times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical uh, um, liars whose conscience had been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving, by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, because it is consecrated by the word of God and by prayer. If you point these things out to the brothers, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus, brought up in the truths of the faith and of the good teaching that you have followed. Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, I hang on to this verse, but godliness 
has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. Wow! If you just allow yourself to soak in that litany of expectation and obligation, of personal sacrifice and exceptional personal discipline, it's overwhelming, isn't it? And so those who are called into leadership in the gospel movements today and these wide range of opportunities that God has provided, it's just not necessarily a pulpit-centric, as we say in the seminary setting now. The, the, the gospel is finding so many different ways to be communicated, and people are being called to unique opportunities in terms of cowboy church and dinner church and and uh, coffee houses and all kinds of other means by which we get out of the salt shaker and into the world to make a difference. But the attack, the targeted attack on clergy has never been greater. And in my role as a seminary professor and in my discussions with my colleagues, we're finding more and more of those who are in active ministry dropping out, saying, I didn't sign up for this. It's just too much. We've seen a huge decline in people staying beyond five years in ministry once they go into the ministry. As a matter of fact, I'm, I'm uh, managing a research grant right now for Asbury Seminary funded by the Lilly Endowment, which basically looks at the stressors on young pastors or new pastors in their first five years. And we're looking particularly at church planters and women in ministry. One of the great blessings we have within the Wesleyan movement is we recognize that women too can be called to significant leadership roles and that it's the anointing of the Holy Spirit that's the key qualifier, not gender. And so we have a special focus on young women or women in new appointments in terms of the kinds of stressors they face in going into ministry. And it's a bit overwhelming in terms of what the research is showing, that the burdens of leading spiritually are testing our pastors and our spiritual leaders at levels like we've never seen before in the history of Asbury Theological Seminary. And so it's even more critical that we who are blessed by and receive teaching from and are those who are essentially ministered to understand how critical it is that we stand with and support our pastors. So you invite them to dinner, not have them for dinner in terms of the way you approach them. And so I want to just give you a, a story about a couple, Marion Clow and James Pointer. That's Pointer with a Y. Not the eye, Jim would say. That's the difference between the dog and I. Marion Clow and James Pointer, who met at a little holiness Bible college in southern Ontario called Ansley College, which was a part of the holiness movement denomination that then merged with the Standard Church, which in turn then merged with the Free Methodist Church in Canada and became the Free Methodist Church holiness movement denomination. Uh, Marion had first gone to uh, medical school, and she was a licensed practical nurse. And her sense of calling was that she was going to basically go to China as a medical missionary. That was her calling. That's what she wanted to do. 
But during the second year of their Bible school experience, I believe it was, or perhaps toward the end of it, it turned out that China closed. And so Marion's opportunity to be a missionary, a medical missionary in China, uh, was not going to happen. But Jim Pointer caught her eye. And Marion caught Jim's eye. And they decided if we can't go, then we'll stay. And we'll minister here. And so began a ministry of uh, particularly choosing intentionally little churches, small churches, where nobody else really wanted to go. And as you look at the history of Jim and Marion Pointer's appointments, you'll see that uh, often the bishop and the uh, conference superintendent would come to them and say, uh, Jim and Marion, uh, we have nobody to fill this particular church. And if we don't send a pastor, we're going to have to close it. And Jim and Marion say, here we are, send us, we'll go. That's what happened in my hometown of Timmins, 500 miles plus north of Toronto, a little congregation way up in the north that was started in the 40s by uh, a pastor, Reverend Ray Goheen, and his wife, who uh, was uh, suffering from polio. Uh, the roads did not permit much, and so they had a dog sled. And uh, essentially, they planted two churches, one in the town of Timmins and one 45 miles away in a little place called Goldland, which was a crossroads for uh, the railroads uh, in that particular day. And so they would serve in Timmins, and then, can you believe this? And she's crippled up. Uh, she's sitting in the dog sled. The dogs are pulling them. It's taking them a couple of days to get to Goldlands, and they minister there for two or three days, and then they come back to Timmins, and they minister there, and they laid the foundation for a little holiness outpost way up there ministering to the gold miners and the lumberjacks and the Inuit Indians. The, in, the Inuit tribe is a part of the, the First Nations people of Canada. And they were there because they were called to do that. And there have been some other pastors since they had retired, but the congregation had shrunk and there were very few people there. And uh, the bishop and the superintendent called Jim and Marion in and said, we have an appointment way up north, 350 miles away from the closest Free Methodist Church. And we were wondering if you would be willing to take it. Because if you don't, we're probably going to have to close it. We just can't keep it going with 35 or 40 people uh, at the Timmins Church and 25 or 30 people at the Goldlands Church. And uh, Jim and Marion, always up for the challenge, uh, said, yes, uh, we'll take it. Uh, the salary that they received, and it was the same salary for quite a while because the church couldn't uh, provide any more, was $45 a week. And uh, basically all the moose meats you could eat. I guess that was the, the arrangement uh, that they had. And uh, they were expected to serve both charges, the Goldlands Church and the Timmins Church. You can imagine that for 45 bucks a week, and they not, by that time had four children, that, uh, that it took most of Jim's salary just to cover transportation costs because uh, it was no longer he, uh, and I wouldn't either, want to go by dog sled, and he, but you've even got to feed dogs, right? And so they were consumed by going back and forth. We had services Sunday morning in Timmins and then Sunday afternoon at Goldlands and then back to Timmins for Sunday evening services 
Wednesday night services in Timmins, and that was their calling. But they couldn't stay in ministry on that kind of salary. So Marion makes the decision to reactivate her nursing general practice license and starts to work at the South Porcupine General Hospital, 25 miles away from Timmins, taking night shifts from 11 at night till 7 in the morning, six days a week, in order to keep them in the ministry. It was her sacrifice. And, and I can still remember uh, their schedule. Uh, often she would come home or, uh, in the morning. Uh, Jim would have breakfast for her. She'd go to bed for a couple of hours, get up and do her work, and then she'd go back to bed in the afternoon. Uh, Jim would get supper ready, uh, and then uh, she would do some of her additional work, and then she'd be off at 10 p.m. to go to the South Porcupine General Hospital, and she would minister there till 7 or 8 in the morning. And then they just did that day in, day out for multiple years. They said, when we've talked about this, that there was just a profound sense that God was going to do something in this, what many would call the God-forsaken north of Canada. We used to joke that Timmins is at the end of the world, but if you step out there about 10 miles, you can see the end of the world. I mean, it, there really wasn't much around, but they just felt called there. Now, what they had discovered is that God, for some reason, had made them attractive to troubled teens. And so going way back to after they graduated from Bible school, they began the practice of taking in street kids. And the street kids would come in for six months or a year or a year and a half, uh, and uh, you know they would be confronted with the love of Jesus. You can imagine in Timmins, 45 bucks a week. They've got four children of their own. Now they have one, two, or three uh, street kids uh, teens, uh, troubled teens that essentially need care and feeding and support. And they just felt that was their calling. As a matter of fact, it wasn't unusual for the for there be a knock at the door at maybe 2 a.m. in the morning, and you open the door, and there stood a Timmins police officer with a young kid in tow. And he would always say, Rev, we got another one for you. And there was always room for one more. Always room in Jim and Marion's place. I'm the beneficiary of that ministry. Because as I mentioned, at 14 years of age, I came home from school, found my clothes on the front lawn. The door was locked. My dad, an alcoholic, had abandoned us. And my mom, who had serious emotional and physical problems, was screaming through the door, you're no blankety-blank good. You'll turn out like your blankety-blank old man. I never want to see you again. So at age 14, I picked up my few clothes that were out there on the front lawn of the house where we were living and didn't know what I was going to do. And again, we don't have time to talk about the sovereign intervention here, but I ended up with Jim and Mary. And for the next five years, I was nurtured by them. At the end of the first year, it all kind of came in on me. I was 15. One of the things that my mother had thrown out uh, on the front lawn was my hunting rifle. You grow up in northern Canada, you're going to be a hunter. And my mother had this terrible, uh, almost demonic oppression that she would uh, go berserk, and, and she would grab the kitchen uh, 
doors uh, on the cabinets and start banging them. Bang, 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 bang. And she'd scream at the top of her voice in guttural sounds. And, and often they would be directed at my father and then directed at me. And uh, I was a young lad and I'd had enough. And I, I, I loaded my hunting rifle. I took it downstairs. I raised it to my shoulder and I pointed it at her and was going to pull the trigger. When something happened, it was a divine intervention, I know now, where every bit of anger and every bit of hate just flowed out of me. It was like somebody had reached down and pulled a giant manhole plug out of the bottom of my spirit. And everything that I had accumulated in terms of anger and hate toward her just suddenly disappeared. And I lowered the rifle. It was the next day that I came home to find my rifle and my clothes on the front lawn. So you can understand my mother was really frightened. So I don't want you to judge her too severely because I had scared her almost to death in terms of what had happened. After a year living with Jim and Marion, for me, it all came down as well. And I thought, you know, maybe she's right. My guidance counselor in the 10th grade had called me in and I uh, wasn't doing well in school. Uh, he said to me, uh, you know, David, you're just too stupid. These were his words. You're too stupid to be in school. You're now 15 and in Canada, uh, you can drop out of school and go get a job in the, in the lumber mills or in the gold mines. Uh, I don't want to get too, too graphic here, but it turned out he was also a homosexual. And he chased me around the desk and tried to grab at me in those private areas. And again, reinforcing the signal that I was getting out of life, that I wasn't of much value, I wasn't of much worth. And so at the end of that year, living with Jim and Mary, and even though they worked hard to minister to me, I made the decision that that night I was going to go out into the bush, going to take my hunting rifle with me, and I was, if I was brave enough, was going to take my own life. It just wasn't worth living. I didn't want to turn out like my, my drunken old man to be unfaithful. And so that night I was plotting my escape. Mary went off to work. Jim loved to stay up late. Uh, one of his favorite late night stacks was uh, fried tomatoes and burnt toast and really strong tea. And so uh, I was sitting with him at the table and uh, you know we began to talk and he got his toast and buttered it and got his tea and poured it and uh, finished frying up his tomatoes and sat there and all of a sudden he stopped. And, and now I understand what happened. The Holy Spirit spoke to him and gave him a forewarning of what was going to happen. And he said, Dave, is everything right with you? And here I am a tough street kid and I break down and I sob and I say, Jim, nobody gives, excuse the French, a damn about me. Nobody gives a damn. Even doesn't care about me. My dad has abandoned us. I don't think life's worth living. Jim sat there and he listened. And then he reached back and grabbed um, the, the standard issue, by the way, for all holiness preachers at that time, which was the which was a big, thick, black, B.B. Kirkbride Bible. Uh, and he opened it up to Psalm 27. And he said, uh, I think 
there may be a word for you. He said, read verse 10. You know what Psalm 27 verse 10 says? That when your mother and father forsake you, then the Lord will take you up. Now, I had been used to sitting under some pretty hard holiness preaching and had resisted some very long altar calls during that first year where we sang all 100 verses of Just As I Am, okay? <laughs> but at that moment, there was a sense that this is true. I didn't see angels. I didn't hear angel voices or music. I had, wasn't responding to a scary evangelist story that if I didn't accept Jesus, I would step out into the darkness and a careening snowplow would come out of nowhere and I would be dispatched to a Christless eternity. I don't know if any of you have sat under some of that heavy holiness uh, preaching. There was none of that. There was just this aha moment. And in that moment, I knew that despite whatever else had happened in my life, despite all of the evidence along the way, that God was willing to take me up, that I could be adopted by the divine adopter. If I would just allow myself to believe that when your mother and father forsake you, then the Lord will take you up. Now, that was the culmination of a series of grace moments for me. When I was in grade one, um, my dad was still living with us, but there was a lot of stress and tension in the home. And uh, in the first grade, we were going to have a play that our parents were supposed to come to. And I knew my parents wouldn't come. As a matter of fact, even as a first grader, I didn't want them there. I didn't want to be embarrassed by having them there. And so we were having this play, and the invitation went out. But the real kicker was they were asking the, the, the teacher, Mrs. Everest was her name. By the way, she was over six feet tall, so she was properly named for this little first grader. And she, she sent home a note saying, David's going to be this little, cute little bear, uh, and you need to make him a little costume. And I knew my mother was in no condition to do that. And so we did the rehearsals, and each day passed, and <clears throat> we then came to dress rehearsal. And Mrs. Everest said to all the little boys and girls, now, tomorrow, be sure to bring your costume with you, because we're going to have a rehearsal. Can you imagine the terror in this little boy's heart and the realization that I might be the only one without a costume? See, this sense of worth began to deteriorate even at that early age. And, and, and so I, I tried to fake being sick the next day. That didn't work. Mom sent me to school anyway. And as I walked into school in Canada, uh, because of the weather, there were always cloakrooms uh, behind the front. So you have the, you'd have the uh, classroom up front, you'd have the blackboards, and then behind the blackboards was the, the wall of, of coats. <clears throat> and so each child was coming along and bringing their costume in, and um, Mrs. Everest was, was there looking at it and said, oh, that's wonderful, that's wonderful. And then it came my turn and no costume. And she looked down at me and she said, David, come with me. And she took me around the line and into the cloakroom. 
and there on my peg hung my costume. Mrs. Everest had made my costume for me. I had no idea, no idea that she knew anything. Here's a teacher. She made us repeat the Lord's Prayer every morning, and, and uh, so she had you know, Christian values in her background. I, I loved Mrs. Everest. She was my, I loved to go to school, to be affirmed by her and supported by her. And even though my parents never showed up for that little play, I did my little bear, cute bear thing, you know, in the costume that my teacher had made for me. And everybody went, oh, and you can't imagine how much that buoyed my own sense of value and worth. It came to the end of the first grade and and then, of course, summer is traumatic for, for children. You don't know who your teacher is going to be. And I thought, oh, dear, you know, how can I ever go back to school without Mrs. Everest? Uh, she meant so much to me. And so the opening day of second grade came, and we got all lined up in the little gymnasium and in our rows in our various classrooms, and uh, we were to follow our teachers out to our new classrooms. And there in the front of my line, was Mrs. Everest. They had had a kind of a downturn in first grade enrollments and a bumper crop of second graders. And Miss Everest got, was asked to, and she made the decision to teach second grade. So I'm just as happy as can be. And I'm marching in, you know, to the classroom and she's greeting each of us. And as I get to her, she reaches down and she says, David, I asked for you to be in my class. Can you imagine the impact that would have? You who are teachers, particularly you who are teaching at the elementary level, just know what kind of impact you can have on, on kids with the, the, the most difficult home lives. You can, just with a little act, making a little cardboard costume, a little act of saying you were important enough to me to be selected you can make a difference in somebody's life. And so that was one of the, the little seeds that was sown early on. After my dad abandoned us, my mother, who always had a spiritual bent, but we weren't a religious family, decided I need to go to Sunday school. And we had Sunday school in the afternoon in this little United Church, which is a combination of Methodists, Presbyterians, and Congregationalists that formed the United Church of Canada. And uh, we had a, a dear uh, little lady who taught the fifth grade boys. Talk about somebody willing to go into battle. Uh, and, and she was an old holiness lady. And I don't mean this disrespectfully at all. Long black dress, black button-up shoes, you know, buckle shoes, hair in a bun. And she loved on these little graders. And, and if you came three times in a row, you got a prize. I thought, wow, I'm going to come three times in a row. I, I hate to confess, my mother gave me a quarter to put in the offering. The problem was the little United Church went right by the convenience store. <laughs> Lord, forgive me, but the quarters only made it as far as the Pepsi and Coke machine. And it never made it to the offering plate. But I did go three Sundays. And I got my prize. And my prize was a Bible bookmark. And it was a Bible bookmark that at the top had a picture. 
And it was a boy on the deck of a ship with his hands on the wheel. And there was a storm brewing around the ship. And there was a picture of Jesus standing behind him with one hand on his shoulder and the other pointing the way. And it basically, these simple words, Jesus, Savior, pilot me. Below it was a little luminescent cross that glowed in the dark. Neatest thing. And so when I got home that night, I taped it up at the foot of my bed. And for the next several weeks and months, when I was awakened in the middle of the night by the crashing of dishes and the, the cursing and the swearing and the fighting, I would look up, pull my covers down and look up and see that little luminescent cross glowing just bright enough to show the picture of that young lad with his hand on the wheel in the midst of a storm being given direction by Jesus. And so some seeds had been sown along the way that that night with Jim in, in over Moose Steak and whatever else we were eating at that particular time, I was primed to believe with all of my heart that even though my mother and father didn't want me, my heavenly father did. And so Jim and Marion became such an important part of my life. I flunked out of high school. To this day, I don't have a high school diploma. But Jim and Marion sensed that God had a call in my life and uh, convinced a little Bible college in Toronto to let me in on probation for one semester. I had to get a C in order to stay. And by God's grace and help and the tutoring of some other caring professors, I got my C. And I was there for a second semester. And then a third and fourth and was able to graduate and then come on here to the States, to Spring Arbor, and watch the Lord unfold for me. Jim and Marion then were called to leave Timmins and went to another small church. And uh, about three years at that small church, something went wrong. And they were going to be moved again. And I went to annual conference. By that time, I was an ordained elder in the Free Methodist Church and went to annual conference, because I still had my papers in that particular conference. And I uh, sat with Jim and Marion uh, as they were going to be taken into the bishop and the superintendent and the, the clergy placement committee. And I was had my arm around them and knew that God was going to provide. When they came out, they were ashen. And they sat down beside me, and I said, Jim and Marion, what's wrong? And Marion said, well, they just told us there's no church for us. And uh, Jim was beginning to weep. This was their call. This was their ministry. And, and so Marion, who was the aggressive, more bold person, said to the bishop, why is there no church for us? And the bishop, we have a system where it's primarily an appointment system, but it's also a call system. The congregation is consulted before the appointment is made. And the bishop says, Jim and Marion, I don't know how to tell you this, but we've um, tried three or four different congregations, and every one of them have said no to your coming as their pastor. And Marion said, why? And I guess the bishop hesitated, and he said, well, it's because of the kind of people your ministry attracts into the church. 
people like Dave Geyerson and others. There was a fearfulness that because Jim and Mary were willing to take the least, the left, and the lost, that fundamentally they were bringing in teams that would have a negative influence on the teams. Well, during their ministry, listen to this, they took in over 60, 60 young men and women off the streets. And I have to confess that we probably weren't the best behaved. You know, there would be times when a couple of us who were the street kids, you know, were, were probably quite unwise. Uh, some of the old gospel hymns, you know, I'll fly away, oh glory, I'll fly away. And we'd be in the back of the church, you know, <laughs> doing this. And, uh, you know, the, the old saints were turning around wondering what in the world is going on here. Jim and Mary, what have you done to pollute our church with these kinds of disrespectful young people? So I used to make fun of I'll fly away when I heard it today. When I hear it, it brings tears to my eyes because I understand the depth of the truth of that. And so Jim and Marion left the ministry in terms of vocational calling and ended up in the Children's Aid Society of Ontario, where they were given uh, purposefully the most difficult older teens that were aging out of the system in a group home. And not surprising to me, but certainly surprising to the Children's Aid Society of Ontario, there was a transformation in each of these lives. Almost all of them came to faith, believing in Jesus Christ, and they were turned around. Matter of fact, they were so successful that they were interviewed nationally on, on the CBC television network, and the interviewer said, well, uh, Jim and Marion, why is it you've had so much success with these incorrigibles? And Marion says, well, we just tell them about Jesus, and we love on them like Jesus would love on them. And so they did that ministry for a period of time. And then they were called uh, to help with a, a new television ministry in Canada called 100 Huntley Street, and Marion was, was brought in as uh, the one who was in charge of all of the phone counselors, and Jim, because they were right down, down, uh, downtown in Huntley Street, right near the Red Light District, he was the resident pastor ministering to people. It was amazing what God had done. He, they'd been faithful. Jim did not take much care of himself. And he went probably 21, 22 hours a day. Uh, we joked that Jim Pointer was five foot five high and five foot five wide. Uh, you know, people used to joke and say, if you're ever looking for Mr. Pointer, he's round in front, really round in front. You know, he did not care for himself and take care of himself. And so after Nancy and I had moved to Virginia Beach in terms of our next calling, we got a call one night that Jim had had a massive stroke. And Jim had always said, I want to burn out rather than rust out. And so for the next several years, Jim was unable to be in ministry. The worst had befallen him in terms of what he imagined could happen. They came to visit us. And I had not seen Jim or had any conversation with him, obviously. And they came and and we're going to stay in our spare room. And, and like the old times, Mary went to bed early, and Jim and I stayed up to have tea, strong tea, burnt toast, and fried tomatoes, just for old times' sake. And we were in proximity, and Jim couldn't speak. He pretty much lost his ability. And, and he, you know, he would take his tea, and it would drip all down. He was always properly dressed with a tie and a shirt, and it's just the way he was brought up. 
and you know it was spilling down in front of him and 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 it was just hard to watch and 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 he he finally looked at me and he said can't talk go bed and off he went that was a faith crisis moment for me i wondered is this the way god treats his most faithful servants nancy had already gone to bed i crawled in bed and couldn't sleep I was on my back and I was just seething. And I was actually muttering, God, if this is the kind of God you are, if this is how you treat your faithful servants, the worst thing that could happen to Jim was him to end up like this. Then I'm not sure I want to continue to follow you. I mean, I was that, I was that angry and that hurt because these were my parents who had loved me out of hell into heaven, right? And just as I completed that thought, I heard Marion down the hall. Oh, Jim, come to bed. And rustling. And then she said, Jim, let's sing. Now remember, they were song evangelists. And I thought to myself, Marion, you insensitive dolt. Why in the world would you ask Jim to sing when he's had this stroke? And so Marion, who wasn't much of a singer, uh, uh, but she tried, uh, began to sing, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. And she sang, it is well, and Jim sang back, it is well. And she sang, it is well, and Jim sang, it is well. And they sang together, it is well. It is well with my soul. Interesting thing about stroke victims, depending on which side of the brain it impacts, uh, for whatever reasons, that music side. And over time, Jim was able to sing more and more. Matter of fact, he came on 100 Huntley Street when I was asked to host the program that day to celebrate uh, Marion's retirement. And we celebrated her retirement. Remember I told you there were 60 of us. That we were nicknamed Marion's Bloomin' Idiots. That's what we were called, Bloomin' Idiots. So we got as many of us of the 60 together and said, let's, let's ask a florist to create a bouquet of flowers for Marion with 60 different flowers. And so they pulled it off. And on the show that day, uh, another person, Alex and myself, who had spent the most of the time and had our lives transformed by Jim and Marion's ministry, presented Marion with this bouquet from her Bloomin' Idiots. And then they went over to sing. And Marion was very proper British. She always stood, you know, like this. And, and she began to sing, and Jim began to sing with her. You know what they say? When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. They retired. Marion contracted pancreatic cancer. It was terminal. We knew that Jim would probably not survive without Marion. So we all prayed fervently. And in, and in good Wesleyan style, when I would go to visit with them, I would ask, Marion, how is it with your soul? Jim, how is it with your soul? And Marion's response, you know, would be more lengthy because she was able to talk. 
Uh, Jim's was always, oh, it's, well, and then he would say something. He would say, oh, David, Jesus, beautiful. Jesus, beautiful. Jim was a talker, but he couldn't talk anymore. Often his talking probably got in the way of the full revelation of who Jesus is. And so in this state now, which I saw as totally undeserved, God was revealing himself to Jim apparently in new ways. Because when I would ask him frequently, Jim, how is it with your soul? I'd get the same response. Oh, it's well. And then he'd smile, crooked smile, and say, oh, Jesus, beautiful. As Marion's pancreatic cancer progressed, uh, Marion was full of Marianisms. Uh, every time there was a crisis in the home, she had a scripture verse tacked up somewhere or a saying tacked up somewhere. And one of her favorites was, Jesus will never be all you need until Jesus is all you have from a missionary that she had great respect and love for. And so in the final days of her life, when I visited with her, it was the last visit with her before she passed, I said to her, Marion, how is it with your soul? And she said, you know, David, all my life, I have said that Jesus will never be all you need until Jesus is all you have. And you know what, Dave? Right now, Jesus is all I have. And you know what else? And she tried to smile and she said, he's enough. He's enough. Ladies and gentlemen, the kingdom longs for men and women willing to make the sacrifice to live on $45 a week and all the moose meat you could eat. But there are no promises that if you serve faithfully, you aren't going to go through the valley of the shadow of death. And many of our spiritual leaders today are facing incredible challenges, and they need the body of Christ to come around them. They need the body of Christ to support them. And tonight I just felt led, uh, and again, I hope this is the Holy Spirit, and it's not an attempt to get people to come forward so that, you know, our brother can sleep at night here. But I, I, I'm going to ask, and I'm going to ask whoever's going to lead the singing, you know, if we could sing When Peace Like a River Attendeth My Way, that would be wonderful. And I'm going to ask uh, any of you who are in, uh, in vocational Christian ministry, whatever form it takes, would you be willing, as this hymn is sung, to come forward and, and stand up here with me and, and face the congregation and let the congregation just marvel at what God has done in calling men and women who are willing to pay any price in order to save even just one and to mature just one for the kingdom. And no matter what they face, they'll be able to say with great courage and conviction, it is well. And in the end, as Marion was able to say, Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. Stand with me, and if you would come, I'll come down and join you as we thank the Lord for people like the Pointers and thousands of others 
willing to pay whatever price is necessary to serve the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords in times like these. what they signed up for. Isn't that amazing? Whatever the price. They don't know what that price will be. Jim and Marion, as a young couple in this little Bible school in southern Ontario, had no idea what lay ahead of them. And some might say they weren't treated very well by the church. But they knew that whatever would come their way, it would be worth it all. Because in the end, Jesus was the reason they were serving fulfilling that call on their lives. And so I'm going to ask you, I hope this isn't too charismatic or Pentecostal for you, but I'm going to ask you, if you would, would you stand, extend out your hands? And in so doing, just think of the privilege God has given you to stand alongside of, to stand with, sometimes to stand behind and give a good push, okay? God so often calls us to difficult tasks, and the only way we can fulfill them is to know we're not alone, that there are people standing with us. So I trust that somehow this night, 
when you return back to your congregations, whether your spiritual leaders are here or not, you will covenant in a fresh way to stand with them in these most difficult times for the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Because you know what? There are a whole bunch of little Davy Gyardsons. Matter of fact, I was going to tell you earlier that this campus had such an impact on me that when I introduce myself from this point on, I'm going to say, my name is David Gyardson. <laughs> There's such a sense of God's presence here. You need to take that presence back to your church. And you need to ensure that your pastor knows that you're on the Lord's side and you're serving the Lord as you serve him. Father, we who stand here before these dear people, the sheep that you've entrusted to us, we just want to say, Lord, we're not up for this on our own. We can't do this by ourselves. We need, of course, your Holy Spirit. We need the clarity of your call. We need you, Father, to continue every single day to affirm the fact that no matter what the circumstances, whenever Satan buffets, that there is that assurance that faithful are you. We, we, we lay hold of 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24. Faithful are you who have called us and you will equip us and you will bring it to pass. And then would you somehow give an anointing to everyone in this tabernacle tonight whose hands are outstretched to be ambassadors of counsel, ambassadors of hope, ambassadors of encouragement on occasion as your spirit would lead, ambassadors of, of perhaps good counsel and redirection, because we know we need each other. We know that this business of following you is a team sport. And so, Lord, we thank you for these people who are here, who are now going to be in a fresh way, freshly anointed, to stand as Aaron and Hur did on either side of Moses, holding up our hands until finally for our ministry, as it did for Marion and Jim, the sun sets and the victory is won. When we took Jim and Marion's bodies, because they died relatively close to each other in time, Jim could not survive without Marion. They were a match set. They needed each other. When we went out to this little graveyard, which was 30 miles outside of Toronto, Marion had found it and had bought it because the grave sites were cheap. You know, they, it, she said to me, oh, I got a really good deal. It was way out in the boonies somewhere, no connection to the church whatsoever, but she found two places to be buried. Well, there was already a gravestone set up. Marion Plough Pointer, James Pointer, dates of birth and death, and only three words. It is well. And all of God's people said, Amen. Go with that confidence. But as we serve him, it will be well. Amen? Amen. And amen. Thank you. God bless you guys. Thank you. Hey, my friend. It was your...
think it's Ola or what just happened? Someone went through the rope. Oh. What's so complicated about not walking through a rope? <laughs> 